Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Space Flicks. This is the podcast where we review a movie and decide if it's worth the cost of beaming out to a lonely astronaut in the far reaches of space. I am Dan Tao. I'm Adam. And we Tao. watched Mank recently. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Today we're talking about Mank, the latest film by director David Fincher. Mm-hmm. This one is written by, is his name Jack Fincher? Yeah, his father, Jack David Fincher. David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher. Jackie um, Finch. Yeah. Um, on Netflix, available uh, just as of very recently. Do you have the synopsis in front of you, Adam? I do. All right, read 1930s it. Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. All right, so Citizen Kane famously, I imagine most people listening would know, it's probably considered one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. I think it's been ranked by what the AFI, that's the Amer. what is that actually? The American Film Institute, yeah. Film Institute, as the greatest film of all time, um, directed by Orson Welles. Um, uh, what... I will say, let's talk about expectations. I'm not familiar with Jack Fincher at all. Before this movie came out, I couldn't have even told you that David Fincher's father was a screenwriter or ever wrote any movies. Um, so I, that that is very interesting to me. Um, what were your expectations going into this movie based on your knowledge of David Fincher? And if you have any knowledge of Jack Fincher, your knowledge of Jack Fincher, and how did the movie compare to those expectations, Adam? So I also had not was not familiar at all with the work of Jack Fincher, um, and just a quick perusal of the IMDb indicates that this is his one and only film credit, right? Wow. Okay. Um, I believe he was a journalist or some other kind of. Mm. He was a writer of some other kind, but I don't. So believe a professional he was, writer, but no right. movies other than this one. Um, and so my expectations for this movie were solely built around you know my my expectations for David Fincher generally. Sure. Um, and so, um, in that regard, uh, just based on what other Fincher typically entails, um, I typically expect something pretty acid from him. Right. Um, where, uh, the, it's sort of a, a sharp, Acerbic. Sort, yeah, sort of withering point of view, um, where, uh, the world is sort of full of fools and evil people and Mm -hmm. like this movie will help sort of like help you see which ones are which Mm -hmm. right um and so uh that was sort of that was my expectation um and i think the movie was much uh while while there's certainly a very sort of incisive um and sharp uh point of view that Mank possesses throughout the film. It was ultimately like a much gentler movie mm. than mm-hmm. I was expecting. Um, and that was sort of the big shock to me was just how, uh, despite the sort of extremely caustic or um, cynical eye that Mank views the world through, the movie doesn't feel to me like a tremendously cynical film there are certainly moments of cynicism but i don't feel like the whole thing is 
is designed mm-hmm. to give you like th- that kind of feeling the same way that um, a movie like Gone Girl mm-hmm. pr- produces. Um, what were you, what were you, what were your feelings going in and what were your first impressions? Um, yeah, so I, I definitely love David Fincher. Um, he's one of those directors who any movie he makes, I'm going to be super eager to see it. Um, the notion that his dad had written this one and I had no familiarity with his dad, which it sounds like from your, you know, two seconds of research just now, or maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe you had some, you had done some research previously, but the fact that this was his only movie, I guess I'm somewhat justified in not having any familiarity with Jack Fincher, but I don't know. It, it, it's, it sounds weird, but you know, the idea that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, like the idea, like David Fincher is amazing. He's very talented. His father was probably also very talented, you know, in his mm-hmm. own way. Right. So it's sort of like the idea that the screenplay was by him and the film was directed by his son to me was intriguing and kind of exciting in a way that I wasn't quite sure what would come of it, but I was definitely looking forward to seeing the product, you know? Yeah. Um, and I will say, so, so, uh, but, but from having seen the trailer and just knowing the subject matter, like this is about the guy who wrote Citizen Kane mm-hmm. and it's, and it seems to have been sort of filmed in the style of an older, like 1930s, 1940s kind of film, Hollywood film. Um, I already knew that it was going to be David Fincher stretching himself in a way, like making a film that's different from his normal style. Cause I think he's, I think he's a very technical filmmaker. I think he's, he's a, a director who normally kind of uses all of the tools at his disposal, you know, to make mm-hmm. like a very modern, very sleek, very stylish, um, you know, movie. And, the f- and it seemed like here he was more trying to emulate an older style, which would mean, or which would at least suggest to me a greater degree of, cons- of, of restraint. Um, I, I found that to be really interesting and I was looking forward to seeing what that looked like. And I would say my takeaway from this movie was, um, yeah, okay. This is, this is Fincher. This is kind of Fincher going outside. It's sort of like almost like there's two types of Fincher movies. You know, there's like the Fincher movie and Mm -hmm. then there's the David Fincher doing something different movie. And the the closest thing I could could compare this to that I think falls in the latter latter category would be the curious case of Benjamin Button. That movie has always stood out to me as like Fincher trying to do something different. That's really not his normal kind of movie. Yeah. And I think Mank totally fits in that too. It's Fincher. It's the same director. You know, it's the same person with all of the same talents, all of the same kind of exceptional abilities, but stretching himself in a new way, trying to do something different from what you normally expect from him. And for me, it was great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I sort of liked, it's like, I, I would be sad if Fincher decided to just only do movies like this from now on. You know, like I like to right. think that he's got more social networks and gone girls and fight clubs ahead of him. But, um, but for what it was for sort of like him stretching himself in a new direction, making a film that was written by his father, 
I found it really, really watchable, really engaging. And, um, I liked it a lot. So those are my first impressions. Yeah. And I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's a very likable film, right? mm -hmm. Unlike, you know, there are other movies of his that I think, uh, engender a lot of admiration. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't say that like, as an example, I don't have a fondness. Like I wouldn't use the word like fond in describing my feelings regarding like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Hmm. Right. Um, it's, that's sort of like a, like Like technically well-made, but yeah, it's a, it's a exhilarating movie. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's, this movie has some sort of, the, the edges are sort of softer in a way that, you know, the elbows are not as sharp. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, I actually have a genuine sort of fondness for this film, for the character of Mank, right? For the other characters that populate it, for the way it sounds, feels, and looks, right? Yeah. There are scenes in this movie that I would consider like favorite scenes, right? Where Mm. it's like, I would like to watch that again, right? Mm. As opposed to like, again, like if I'm going to compare it to like Girl with Dragon Tattoo, it's like, there's scenes I won't forget, Right, yeah. like the scene where Daniel Craig goes into the basement of the of the house. Yep. Right, yep. but it's not like I enjoy. It's not like I want to fire that scene back up again. Right. Yeah. It's so deeply yeah. uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so that's like to me the big the big distinction is just how much I as like a as like a hangout movie, which this is in some ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 really hits the mark as far as. Um, making you want to just be with be in this world and be with these characters. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, okay. Let's talk about themes of the movie. So I think, so this is about, it's funny. This is, this has been, I don't want to say marketed, I guess marketed, but you know, in, in this era of the, the COVID era that we're living in, there's only so much marketing that goes behind movies at all these days. It's yeah. sort of like, how is the how is the movie presented, you know, to the world? And I think mm-hmm. um, this one it seems to have largely been presented as this is a movie about the making of Citizen Kane, right? Right. right. Which which is funny to me because I'm like now that I've seen the movie, I'm like it's not really that much about the making of Citizen Kane, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I mean totally. that's in it, you know, but it's not a big part of it. Um, so as far as themes of the movie go. Um, or themes of the movie goes like I will say one to me is I think a theme of this film is a let's see how, how I, I didn't put thought into how I'd word this before I decided to say it. So this might not be very articulate, but someone who is sort of a part of a larger system, mm-hmm. um, sort of making a decision about whether they want to continue to be a participant in the system versus whether they want to be an independent voice that's Mm -hmm. separate from the system. I think that's, I think that's one of the themes at the heart of what Mank is going through in this movie, because he's sort of part of the Hollywood system, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
for much of the movie. And then I think one of the kind of key decisions he makes in the movie is whether he wants to sort of continue to be a just a willful participant of that Hollywood machine or whether he wants to kind of bite the hand that feeds and establish his own voice that's independent. I think that's a big theme of the movie. It's funny. I feel like uh, I I totally understand what you're what you're describing. The the minor sort of quibble that I would take with it is I feel like Mank almost doesn't have a choice, right? Mm, he okay. he almost like cannot help himself from biting the hand that feeds him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and his um his sort of frankly like very very clear sort of principles that he actually has, right? Like prevent him from continuing to participate, right? Mm. And it, and it, in some ways, you know, not, I mean, this movie is based on uh, something resembling real events. And so um, this isn't like a, I feel like we should probably down the, the spoiler submarine momentarily. Spoiler, like, Citizen Kane gets made. Right. <laughs> Right, right. That movie exists. All, That's yes. a spoiler of this movie. Herman yeah. Mankiewicz dies, right? <laughs> Eventually, right? Because uh-huh. this film was made in this film. This film takes place in 1939 or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it, it kind of leads to his ultimate ruin in some ways, right? Like the fact that he cannot play ball mm. the way that. Mm-hmm a lot of the folks like in his life would like for him to. And I don't think it's like he's, you know, deciding whether to sort of compromise his values or not. I think that's almost like a foregone conclusion. He's like, he's mm. not going to do that. And therefore this is how this plays out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in some ways is why citizen came in, in the argument of this film anyway, is like his inability to play ball and his yeah. sort of, yeah. um, uh, you know, his like bitterness almost that he mm-hmm. like would have to if he was to continue to stay in the studio system, and it, it is like is why Citizen Kane gets written at all, right? Right. As right. like a piece of there's like a piece of vengeance baked into it, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, that was so the thing that really uh, kind of shocked me in a way that it was such a prominent theme in the film was the idea of Hollywood or the media more broadly, its ability to shape the public opinion, shape public opinion and consciousness Mm -hmm. with, with lies, like with propaganda and mistruth. Right. Um, And so that was, and, and that's like the thing that he is bucking so hard against. Right and the major players in his orbit that are sort of the authors of that kind of deception are the people he takes the most direct aim at by mm-hmm. the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's a really unusual topic for like for a movie that's marketed as like the making of citizen Kane for it to be predominantly fixated on a political campaign. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was like a really sort of shocking thing that I didn't see coming. Um, but, uh, yeah, but that, it's was, really, that was one of the big themes that I, that I definitely noticed. No, I totally agree. I think it's, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a nice 
in some ways it's, it's sort of a nice like slap in the face, you know, of, um, you know, I mean, it, like, 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 look on the one hand, let, let's face it. Everybody has their own perspective, right. On how the world works mm-hmm. and nobody has, nobody's the authority on this. Right. But I think this movie takes a pretty hard stance of like culture, like pop culture, like the entertainment industry, right. Mm-hmm has a huge hand in how people feel. Right. And I think in a, in some ways it's it's wrestling with that, grappling with it. I think in some ways it's not really that central to the story, but it's also mm-hmm. it's it's very much recognized at the very least. I would agree with that. And I would say um you know, there's sort of an arc to this film, to the story of this film where Mank almost views it as like an amusing thing, you know, initially. Right. And it's sort of like, look, we can just change how people feel if you want, you know, no big deal. And then, right. and then sort of as the story progresses, it's like, actually that's a huge responsibility. It turns out, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we are producing the entertainment, the, the content, right. In modern day terms that people are consuming, and if that content causes them to believe a certain thing, that's a massive responsibility that we have. Now, I don't think this this movie necessarily makes that point so strongly, but I do think it it calls out sort of the power that the entertainment industry has. And right. yeah, um, I don't know that I don't know that the movie is making that argument so much as it is um, effectively communicating that Mank believes it mm-hmm. right by the end certainly right yeah 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 well mank mank sort of <clears throat> he sort of uh comes to terms with the possibility of it let's say right the fact that he may have had a hand in something that happens in the world politically that he didn't think he had any responsibility for or any influence over right and then it turned out maybe he did right um and but i think i think i think the the movie so i will say sort of backing up a little bit this isn't doesn't quite fit in themes but i i find the movie to be very um sympathetic toward mank i i think mank is a sympathetic character mm-hmm. which i which i feel is worth saying because i've read and listened to some other reviews of the movie that make that that claim that Mank is not a sympathetic sympathetic character like they say that like Mank is not likable you know he's sort of not relatable or whatever and everybody's you know entitled to their own opinion of a movie but for me I was sort of like no I liked Mank a lot I I really liked yeah. him he's like the yeah. smartest guy in this movie you know right and so naturally, as a guy who thinks of myself as the smartest guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in most situations, I'm sort of like, yeah, no, I totally get where this guy's coming from, you know, which is often when you're the when you fancy yourself the smartest guy, right, or the smartest person in a situation. It's it's sort of an interesting it's it's an interesting viewpoint. What if you kind of don't give a damn what everyone else in the group thinks, right? Because you assume you're the smartest. Mm-hmm. So you sort of only look to yourself. And right. 
in this film, I think the kind of biggest story beats are mostly Mank sort of realizing, deciding to view things differently for himself, you know, as mm-hmm. far as I think the, the, the earliest, um, I don't know if half or what, you know, fraction is right, but the beginning of the movie Mank is definitely sort of a smug, aloof, very intelligent person, but he also kind of doesn't care what's happening. And then as the movie goes on, he comes he comes more to terms with how much he has influenced things and recognize it, you know, in his own mind, recognizes the role he's played and decides to take more responsibility for what, what he's contributed to. Right. Right. Um, and, and, but it's all, it's, it seems to pretty much be all pretty much up to him, you know? Um, right. Which is how I feel it kind of works when you're, when you're so the, the quote unquote smartest guy in the room. Right. No um, one's yeah. No one's pushing him to make any of the decisions that. Yeah. Nobody's like Mank. Here's how you need to change. You know. Right. He's just sort of he's just sort of observing what happens and adapting. Right. Um. And so to me, um, I guess one of the themes is like your, and I feel like responsibility is not the right word. It's just more like when you when you are the smartest guy in the room, you know, when you're the smartest person in the room and nobody else knows better than you do. And you're the one who's kind of making decisions about how things are going to go. Like. Are you going to take that seriously or not? You know, I I, I think that's Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the messages of Mank is he's he he kind of comes to realize in the movie that what he thinks actually does matter and what he chooses to direct his energy towards does matter and um so so yeah i mean i guess i didn't want to use the word responsibility because i don't feel like that's a word that the, that the movie would use mm-hmm. but i'll use it i i'll say there is some responsibility when you're sort of at that level, you know, right. Of, of like you're producing at a level that's beyond what other people in your role can produce. So what are you going to do with that power? Yeah. Right. Well, like to put, to, to make more sort of explicit, I think the, the responsibility lens that you're sort of, uh, introducing here at one point, Mank is in a conversation with, um, Paramount pictures, executive, Irving Thalberg, right? Mm-hmm. And Thalberg is uh, a little bit bothered that Mank is like unwilling or unable to sign something that to don- is ins- yeah to donate some money <laughs> yeah to donate to like a political campaign right and Mank is like hey you're one of the top executives at an organization that like shapes how people think that's capable Mm. of shaping how people think. Yep. If you're not using that to affect the change that you want, you're not even trying. Right. Yep. Yep. And Thalberg takes that criticism to heart 
and makes some propaganda films, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and then Mank's like, oh, crap. <laughs> Mank's like, oh, no, he took my suggestion, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and I think in some ways what Mank is realizing is like, I see so clearly how amoral people can get what they want, right? Mm-hmm. And I just gave it away, right? Yep. Yep. I just gave it to them as a weapon in their arsenal that they didn't even realize that they had. And now they're like potentially making the world a worse place. And in one yeah, particular yeah. case, they're ruining somebody's life. Like I, I, I used it in the moment as an excuse to not have to commit to anything. Right. <laughs> right. Right. By just pointing out, you don't even need me. You get this other option. Right. Right. But then walking away and allowing time to elapse, it's like, actually, I just gave ammunition to like a villain. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so I think in some ways, like responsibility is sort of the genteel word, but it's almost like he feels like a culpability or like mm-hmm. a guilt around yeah, the fact yeah, yeah. that he gave up, he gave up, uh, sort of a, a shattering idea. Right. Yeah. Not even really realizing how, like that the, you know, uh, how potent the idea was when he sort of just flippantly like threw it on the ground as he left the room. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think responsibility is kind of the forward looking term, you know, it's like, yeah, that's right. When you, when you have, when you have the ability, right. Looking forward, how you're going to influence how things go. That's a responsibility. When you shirk that responsibility, you don't take it seriously and then things go a certain way that isn't the way you would have liked for them to go. Right. You're, you're culpable. Right. Which I think people would also say you're responsible. Right. Like, right. Right. You know, um, you were one of the few in a position of power who could have changed how things went. Yeah. And you chose with the power you had, you chose to either influence things in this direction or, you chose to just not influence things at all, right? Right. You right. chose to just do nothing. And yeah. you could have done something, but you chose to do nothing, and therefore things are the way they are. Yeah. Um, which, it's funny, like, us talking about this, I'm like, I don't think that's necessarily what I would have said Mank was about, but here we are talking about it. This is what I'm saying it's about. Um, I don't think it's so much about responsibility. I do think... I do think largely Mank is about um, capability and sort of grappling with what you have, Um, you know, because I think, and we'll get, I mean, I mean, we're sort of vaguely talking about themes, although I think we're, we're sort of flirting with the next segment, which is best parts of the movie. So we'll get into spoilers in a minute, but I think largely the arc of Mank is like this guy is a writer who's very, very, very good at what he does. And he's sort of been okay with being just very, very good at what he does within a larger system Mm -hmm. that more or less tells him what to do for a while. And I think this movie is about him starting to realize maybe I don't need permission from the system to do what I want to do, you know? Well, 
Yes. But except but okay, let's hear it. Except well, I it's like I think he recognizes as he's writing the script that he calls American, right? Which eventually becomes the script for Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. This is his only chance to do what you're describing. Right? Right. Like he never took advantage of any of, for whatever reason, maybe he didn't have opportunities or maybe he did and he didn't take advantage of them. But either way, it's like whenever he was working inside the studio system, he was like a good soldier and like wrote the stuff that they needed him to write. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's only when he is kind of um, totally on the outs. Right. And they've like, won't invite him back in the building. Right, that he's yeah. like, okay, now I'm gonna write this really individualistic uh, thing that is kind of a veiled takedown of those in positions of power, right? And it's like, yeah, but you didn't really. That wasn't a choice that you made, right? Like you, I mean, on one hand, yes, he's choosing to like write American instead of going instead of taking, for example, like his brother's offer and like going back to the studio and writing something else. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's like the only reason they've even given him that offer is because it's being, it's clear that he's writing something that's sort of incendiary and is going to make some people upset. But it, you know, it, 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 he feels more like a cornered animal than he does like a person choosing his own fate. And I think that's like the contrast that I would draw between him and like Louis B. Mayer or, the or William Randolph Hearst in this film is like those people in this in the world of this movie are these like titans of industry who see what they want the world to be and they just make it so right mm-hmm. and mank i feel like is unable to deploy his intelligence in the same way right he cannot shape the world the way that these other players are able to he can punch back right but they're sort of the ones left at the end like sort of laughing right uh where they're like yeah i mean that was cute but mm-hmm. i'm gonna get what i want at the end of all of this because i'm capable of like imposing my will on the world yeah yeah it's funny there's a um there's a speech in the movie where he talks about a, he's basically pitching a story idea mm-hmm. talking about Don Quixote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, g- going to combat windmills, right. Which is the sort right. of symbol of the utility. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The futile endeavor of an idealist. Right. Um, and I think that's, I, but I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about, which is his sort of final um, showdown in some ways with a, um, like a system that he wants to rebel against. Yeah. Which he's participated in for much of his life, which is doomed to failure. <laughs> because right. Because of how late he's waging it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but he's choosing to do it anyway. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, th- I, th- I think 
I, I think we haven't really given a we haven't given it a label or we haven't put it succinctly, but I feel like the overarching theme of this film is the sort of rebelliousness of like a rebel author, a rebel creator against the system in which that creator operates. Right. And it's like simultaneously futile and beautiful and, Mm -hmm. and praiseworthy and doomed from the beginning, you know? Right. Um, it's, it's somehow all those things paradoxically. Right. And that seems to be what Mank represents. And I don't know, I have no idea what Jack Fincher is all about. Um, but there's something about David Fincher making this film that his dad wrote and that being the message of it that feels very meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. Um, just something like, you know, like he knew it, I know it, <laughs> you know, there is some deep truth here that we're never going to like fix, but it is there and we're going to acknowledge it and we're going to call attention to it, you know? Yeah. I think like the movie gets to sort of have it both ways, right? Cause it's sort of like it's successful, but not mm-hmm. right. Um, like, because I think one of my favorite, I mean, we're just, I'm just going to sort of go ahead and initiate, like we are now talking about best parts of the movie. Okay, going, so I'm, spoilers. I'm, yeah, I'm declaring it. it. Um, because I think the scene, I mean, and what, I, the scene that is by no accident, like one of the, I think the climax of the film is the scene you're describing where Mank, uh, through a series of, speeches that the movie cuts to describes uh his the character who will eventually become charles foster kane and citizen kane right and he's describing this person who is this titan of industry who whose big sort of failed endeavor is uh to be loved right Mm -hmm. like no matter how much he accumulates he just cannot be loved in the way that he wants and he is describing, he thinks he's describing the, you know, the richest man in the room, William Randolph Hearst, right? Mm-hmm. But to your point, he's also so, somewhat describing himself unwittingly, mm-hmm. right? Um, at, because his big endeavor to sort of, uh, to right a wrong, right, will never be fully realized. And then his speech, which he sort of views to be this sort of vicious uh, attack on the character and sort of the unlovability of William Randolph Hearst, Hearst decides to counter with his own story, Mm -hmm. right? And Hearst describes the, the fable of the organ grinder's monkey. And the long and short of it is the monkey um, reverses cause and effect, Mm -hmm. right? the monkey thinks that the monkey is the driver that he, the monkey is the driver of all the things that the organ grinder is doing. When of course the organ grinder and, and and the monkey then, uh, sorry to be clear, overstates his own importance. Mm -hmm. Right. He's like, 
oh man, this this whole operation would fall apart if it weren't for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the organ grind, and the the best part of the story is the punchline is never said expli- explicitly, but the punchline is that the monkey is eminently replaceable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the tragedy is the monkey does not realize this, right? Yeah. And so I he feel like must the, play <laughs> the pairing yeah. of these two stories, right? Together is I think exactly sort of the movie having it both ways, right? Mink gets to alert, stand up and make a big speech and throw up on the carpet, mm-hmm. right? And sort of let the establishment have it, right? And he writes Citizen Kane and they're going to make that movie, right? But at the same time, Hearst is able to gently escort, you know, Mank out of his house mm-hmm. and say, in an extremely elegant, beautiful scene, like, you're the monkey, right? right? Like, you're, you're very replaceable. Yeah. You are here because I found you and in, in the people, I found you to be amusing, right? And you served your purpose as the monkey. But this is me now getting rid of you and I will find, without too much difficulty, a new monkey, right? Like, you are overstating your own importance in this story, right? And I think the movie, sort of that that to me being like the... Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that to me is like the best, the best sequence in the film because... Oh, yeah. It, it just so elegantly ties both of those things together at the same time. This idea of like rebellion and the fact that it's like all theater. Right. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um, that, I mean, that scene feel, you can sort of tell, I feel like that's a scene that like, even if you weren't really paying attention to the movie, Mm-hmm. You would sort of pick up on the fact that that scene was pivotal because, yeah. yeah, because it's sort of like, oh, it's like lingering on this speech, you know, right. this drunken speech that he's giving at this dinner party or whatever it is. And he seems to be going on for a long time. Right. And then Hearst is like walking him down the hall and say, telling him a story like it's very consequential. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, I actually, after that scene, you know, I know we're like in the middle of recording an episode right now, but maybe you could set me straight. Um, I was trying to remember, he references that story earlier in the movie, but then yeah. it cuts away. Do you remember what the actual context is where he's like, have you ever heard the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? What, what was that in response to? Do you remember? The question that Mank was asked was, why are you writing this? Mm. Right. Okay. And he and his answer is, "Have you ever heard the parable of the organ grinder's monkey?" Uh, and I think. Okay. And so I, I, the way that I took that particular response was like, he's he has never forgotten that dinner, yeah. And never forgotten that speech from William Randolph Hearst, and he's like, I need to prove that I am that more, I have some agency in this whole picture. Yeah. That yeah, I'm not yeah, yeah. the monkey, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I, I thought it was something like that. I, I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. quite remember what it was, but yeah, I mean, I think 
it's sort of like this movie is almost like, okay, take the organ grinders monkey and then imagine that the monkey achieves some sort of clarity, you know, Mm -hmm. about his station in the larger picture. Right. But the monkey is actually a very intelligent writer. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, and, and okay, now I'm straining, you know, the metaphor, but like, but like, it's like he kind of, he kind of gains awareness of what his place is in this larger system. Right. Right. And he's, and then, and then suddenly he's like, not okay with that. Right. Like, you know, he's sort of been, he's sort of been, at the top of the food chain in the writer's section, right? Which they show in the form of like him having a staff of writers and, you know, sort of like shelling out this kind of like random, oh, you have to provide the ending, right? To this sort of like neophyte writer. Right. And you can see, okay, there's a hierarchy here. He's, he's, you know, he's in this kind of cushy spot. But at the same time, it's sort of, it all doesn't matter. Right. You know, he's ve- he's very dispensable in this role. Even if he's the head writer, he's not doing anything the studio fundamentally values. Um, and I think the movie's about him coming to terms with that and realizing... I'm going to do something actually singular and actually, you know, of, um, of, a you know, like from the perspective of a singular creative voice who has a viewpoint on, right. On this subject. And that seems to be the sort of act of defiance that he's performing is. Yeah. This is, I'm actually going to write a story that only I can write, you know? Right. Um, and you in Hollywood, you know, you Hollywood bigwigs, you can decide whether you want to make it or not, but you can't replace me as far as making a story like this, right? Writing a right. story like this. Right. Um, so, okay. Wait. So we already gave the, we already gave the signal. Right. Yes. Best parts yes, of the movie. Yes. The submarine has submerged or so emerged. I don't remember how it works. So what's a what's a part we maybe haven't already talked about that's the best part of the movie? Or have we already talked about all of them? Um well I, I mean certainly okay, yeah. So certainly the closing sequence, which usually when we're talking about best parts of the movie, you and I stay for last, but I, I just found it to be so excellent that I just wanted to get right to it because it's so good. Um but I mean, uh, there, there's plenty of great. Hold on, hold on. You mean you, you mean the organ grinder's monkey story? Yeah, the Quixote plus organ grinder's yep, monkey yep, story. Yep, yep, yep. Like it's just excellent. That that's a really good sequence. Yeah, from from uh, Tywin Lannister. Yeah, I mean, just you know, you get like Mank gets to give a speech, and then Tywin Lannister gets to give a speech, <laughs> and it's like those are two good speechifiers. Nope, right those there. are good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I, I feel like one of the um, there's there's plenty of delightful moments. I, I do feel like the sequence that you mentioned a moment ago is is quite good just for how clever and funny it is. The sequence where the writers are quite obviously improvising the plot to an entire film in front of a mm-hmm. studio head and a director to say like, um, 
yeah, we've been working hard on this script. Yeah. Here, uh, here yeah. it is, right? And the fact that like it's a monster movie. <laughs> they view this whole thing as such a joke. Yeah. That they're like, we can make this up with zero thought and mm-hmm. convince you that this is like an award-winning screenplay. And, you know, that's how we're going to like, and we're going to spend the rest of our time gambling, right? Yep. Like yep. that's how little we take, that's Be- how betting unseriously on, betting on whether this. a coin will land heads or tails. Yeah. Right. And I just felt like it was so playful and fun um, that that was a sequence that I, I really, I really liked. Um, another sequence that, uh, that really struck me as being quite good was the one, um, the night of the election when Mank mm. and his wife go to sort of the GOP celebration um, and Mank, in an act of like beautiful self-sabotage, right? Uh, <laughs> decides to bet double or nothing despite the fact that his, that his debts have been forgiven already. <laughs> yes, he's like, I'm, I'm, I am scot-free on this. <laughs> But I am going to purposely double it's very my debt. uncut gems. That yeah, that little. But bit. I, I think in this particular case, he has he knows he's it's a losing bet. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Right. He's like, I am going to like because I kind of can't live having yeah. my debt cleared for basically yeah, yeah, giving yeah. Irving Thal- Thalberg the idea that led to this whole thing being a landslide victory. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I want and need to be punished for it. And this is how I'm going to get my punishment. Yeah. It's, it sort of reminds me of, um, this is going to be a weird comparison, but Stephen Hawking, the, the, um, author of brief history of time. Uh huh. He talks about, he developed this theory of black holes and then he made a bet against one of his colleagues, like, against his theory like he made Mm -hmm. a bet that he was wrong and he and he framed it as like an insurance policy you know he's sort of like either i'm right in which case i lose the bet but whatever i'm right or i'm wrong in which case i'm wrong but i still win this bet you know so i get this like sort of little bit of like little bit of uh you know uh benefit out of the situation um it feels like that to me where he's like, yeah. I actually do. I actually want Sinclair to win. Right. So, but, but I'm pretty sure I've totally made it impossible for him to win. <laughs> right. So right. I'm just going to bet that he will win because that's what I want to happen. It's right. like the opposite of Stephen Hawking. Right. But it's right. like, I'm betting on what I want to happen, even though I fully expect that the actions I've taken have made it so that it can't happen. Right. But I'm yeah. still, I still want it to happen, so I'll bet on it. Right, right. That's what he does. Yeah, and I just find that whole sequence, and in, including like the interplay between him and his wife, right, mm. to be mm-hmm. just, um, you know, I, I think it encapsulates, you know, kind of the charm and the frustration of being in Mank's life, because it's like you're so clever and smart. And you have like underneath this facade of, um, you know, devil may care kind of, uh, attitude you do deeply care. Um, and, and that's sort of like, and you're, and you're sharp and charming, right. 
but at the same time, you're going to ruin us, right? Oh, yeah. Like, and so I, I just feel like that sequence really communicated both of those things, right? And it made me really like uh, her, uh, Sarah, or as she's commonly referred to in the film, poor Sarah. Poor Sarah, yeah. Um, just, and, I, and I'm going to butcher the dialogue, but when she is uh, announcing to the, the, host, the host of the party that the Mankiewiczes are there, and she's spelling the name. Mm-hmm. And at the end of her description, she's like, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a Z. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just sort of like, oh, okay. She is like right there with him. She is yeah. quite clever and quite sharp. And that yeah. like, it makes sense that she would be delighted by him and he by her. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and it helps like, add a bunch of color to a character that otherwise ha- runs risk of just being this sort of like punching bag of a character. And like, mm-hmm. he's horrible and is drunk all the time. She's the wife and, who puts up with them. Yeah. Right. And it's like, no, she's like, she needs to have like her intellect, like appealed to as well. Um, and that's what he, that's what he gives her. Right. Um, but yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's what, not, what, an, what's it's in not this enough. for her. What's in this for him. It's sort of like, they're together because they like amuse each other, you know? Right. Yeah. Like they're, they're, he's the smartest person in the room, but like they're as a couple, they're the smartest people in the room is right. Is, is kind of the vibe you get from them. Right. Right. Totally. Uh, and then the last sequence that I'll nominate for one of the best scenes in the movie is of course the Louis B. Mayer, the real magic of the movies sequence. Mm. Which is like, frankly, kind of mind-blowingly true. Just, just, right? just pure capitalist gold, right? Just well, sort of like you're selling them something where they don't even get anything, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Here's the, here's bu- the magic trick of Hollywood: we get we charge people a fee, they pay us money, they get absolutely nothing out of the equation. We keep everything, and we get all the revenue. Right. right. That's, That's the real magic says. of the movies. And yep. don't you ever forget it. Right. Like the, the, per, the buyer only gets a memory and ownership a brief of the, moment. Yes. Right. And the ownership of the product stays in the hands of the person who sold it to him. Right. Like it's pretty amazing. And then they're on their way to where Louis B. Mayer then asks like the entire talent pool. Yep. At, uh, hey, MG- can you all cut your salaries in half? <laughs> right. Sorry, I, earlier I think I misspoke and said they were at Paramount. They're at MGM, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And basically convinces all these people that they need to take a pay cut while he does not. Yeah. Right? And it's just sort of like, um, and I think that that sequence is like useful illustration of the point that I was making earlier, which is like, Mank never molds the world in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And Louis B. Mayer is like very clear. He's like, I know what this business is. I know how to get what I want. I know how to make powerful people just do what I want. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of, it's just sort of a useful illustration of how that is what Mank is up against. And he's kind of, fr- he's outmatched. Right. And the yeah, only it's, way it's not the it's not the it's not the game he plays, right? It's right. not the world he operates in. 
That's right. The one world where he is the where he is peerless is on the page. Mm-hmm. And that's where he, you know, that's why when he's trying to think through how am I going to combat this idea of the organ grinder's monkey and that that is me, right? He's like I'll I'll take I'll fight back in the way that I know how. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of my favorite sequences. Anything that I didn't mention? No, I mean, I think we, I think we probably shared a sense of what all the best sequences were. Um, our, our final segment is normally fix the movie. Do you have any aspects of this movie that you would fix? Uh, no, I, I don't think that, the, that there was something that I would fix necessarily. Can I tell you something that really surprised me? Yeah. yeah. Um, was uh, it's a it's a stylistic choice that was made by the film that I was almost stunned. I, I thought there was maybe something wrong with my my setup at home the way I was watching it, but the way that the dialogue is treated from like an audio effects perspective, it clearly has a reverberation put on it that's meant to echo what it sounds like when you are listening to a movie in a theater, uh-huh. like if you had a microphone in the theater, uh-huh. yeah. that's what it sounds like. Right. Right. There's a little bit of reverb, a little bit of just, yeah. Like ambiance. Yeah. Just room noise. Right. Yeah. And I was like, that's in the mix. Like, <laughs> cause I was watching this movie with headphones on. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, so it should be impossible for there to be like room noise, right? I should be, it should be beamed directly into my ear holes, mm-hmm. right? But it's like, oh no, they've purposely tried to make this sound like you're sitting in a theater. And this is like a choice that they've made for a movie that is filmed some sometimes in the style of Citizen Kane, right? 1940s film that they are putting on like an online streaming service, right? Yeah. And it just was it struck me as like a really unusual choice, but one that I really well, quite admired, right? I mean, never mind the fact they have cigarette burns, right? Yeah, totally in, unnecessarily, in the, right? Yeah. There's this movie has a ton of just head nods to old style Hollywood filmmaking. Um, whether it's the cigarette burns or the, you know, the fact that apparently they shot this in digital. So yeah. it, the resolution was like way higher, but they artificially reduced it yeah, to make it more, um, in the style you know, of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bear greater resemblance to like a movie filmed on film in the 1930s. Yep. Right. And I think the sound mix is the same way. It's it's make this movie look and feel like it was made a long time ago, basically. Right. Um, which, yeah, I really enjoyed. I mean, I don't think it's kind of hard to say how much of a difference it made. Like, I think the writing and the characters and the dialogue and the story to me, they were what they were. You know, I think the feel of the movie might have contributed, but even if the movie had been like in color, you know, filmed in like crisp digital 2020 technology, um, 
with the sound mix sort of like maximizing the fidelity of the audio signal like it it might have i don't think it would have been that different to me in terms of my takeaway i could be Hmm. wrong it's hard it's it's impossible to prove right because i all i saw was the movie that i saw but um i feel like i still would have come away from the movie with these feelings of this writer who kind of here's here's the arc of mank i feel right it's he's a very smart very competent writer he sort of starts off as kind of a complacent like participant in the system mm-hmm. who's like at the upper end of ability who's just sort of like fine with that and and accepts the fact that he can sort of glide through the system right you know sort of effortlessly and then and then is confronted with the fact that the that his participation in this system makes him complicit in the output of the system. Yeah. And then he he has a bit of a coming to terms with that and then he decides, "Oh, maybe I should have some non-zero amount of conscience and I should write something that's a little bit more uh illustrative of what's going on that I have visibility into. And he decides to do that. And then that movie gets made that, right. that feels to me like the overall arc of Mank. Yeah. And I feel like you could have had a movie that was made completely differently. That would have still fulfilled that arc. Right. And I would have still enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever the movie making kind of, whatever the technicalities of the movie making were. So, that's kind of um, how I feel about the mechanics of the movie. But I still enjoyed them. You know, I, I enjoyed that they were trying to make a movie sort of in the style of like a old 19, you know, 40s Hollywood film. I just yeah. don't I just don't think that it was necessarily critical to what they were trying to do. Yeah, I found it to be. um I found those sorts of choices to have the effect of the movie being more engaging to me, right? Mm-hmm. Because I found myself, and maybe this is ultimately not what you want, but I found myself actively thinking about those choices as I'm yeah. watching the movie, right? It's like, oh, that's an interesting decision that they've made to make the movie look like this or sound like this. Um, or have these affectations that modern movies don't don't need, right? But mm-hmm. here, but this movie's choosing to do them anyway, um, because it sort of forced me to think about why would why would one make this choice, right? Aside mm-hmm. from sort of a, a blanket claim of like, well, verisimilitude with the movie going experience in 1941, right? Um, I don't think that's a super strong argument. Right. Uh, Because I don't think the movie is about like capital A about that. You know what I mean? No, I don't. The movie's not about the movie going experience in 1941 really at all. Like, I don't know. Is there a single scene inside a movie theater 
in this no, film? I don't think I don't, so. I don't believe there is. There's one in a projection booth, I believe. But like, um, but almost very little emphasis on like the actual movie going experience. And so um, it, it forced me to think about like, well, why are we making these choices? Aside mm. from you kind of want it to feel like we found the eight reels of Mank, you know, <laughs> like yeah. uh, in the in the in a in a filing cabinet, you know, in the basement of MGM, right? Like, um, I'm just sort of curious what the what it made me think about that, and it made me engage with the movie in that way. I don't know that I came up with any particularly good answers, but uh, but it was something that certainly kept my attention. Okay. So, yes, I agree with everything you said. Um, is there anything else you want to say about fix the movie or should we <clears throat> get into our final verdict, beam it up or not? I don't think there's anything I'd fix. The I think the performances are uh, great. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, yes, not sorry. I don't need to list all the things I now like about the movie. Um, yeah, very, very likable film so yeah let's, let's yeah keep yeah, going. yeah i'm i mean i i i think it's sort of it's sort of one of those weird like um it's one of those weird movies where it's like do i think it's a perfect movie no but if you asked me okay well what are the all what are all the imperfections i'd be like i kind of can't name any you know right <laughs> i just feel like it's not perfect but i also don't really have anything I would change. Um, which to me is tends to be a sign of, um, to me that that tends to be a sign that the filmmaker achieves what they wanted to achieve, you know? Right. And so it's sort of for, for you as a viewer, it's a question of, well, is that something you wanted to see, <laughs> you know? Right. If not, okay, that's where the disconnect is. They made what they wanted to make, but it wasn't quite what you wanted to see. So where's the delta, you know? Right. But um, for me, for Mank, it's like, yeah, maybe it's not exactly what I wanted, but um, there's so much of it that is kind of was thought-provoking for me, did challenge me, did but was entertaining for me at the same time. And so, yeah, I think I'm there with you. Like there's nothing I would really change about it. Um, it's not to say that I think it's like the best movie I've ever seen, but it's, um, there's nothing that stands out as needing to be corrected. Yeah. I, that's where I, I think I would totally agree with your characterization where it's like, I feel like this movie's doing precisely what it's attempting to do. And I feel like it succeeds at that. Yeah. Does that make it my favorite thing that I've ever seen? No, I'd almost like think that that's a totally independent question. Yeah. Right. Um, cause I think it's a successful movie. Right. Um, does that mean it's like my favorite kind of thing to watch? No. Right. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And maybe that's more of an indictment of me than anything else, but it's like, um, but yeah, but I don't begrudge the movie for that. The movie's doing its thing. Yep. 
All right. So tell us, Adam, would you beam it up? I'm going to, can I, oh, I have a wishy-washy answer. Let's hear which it. Is, Let's hear your wishy-washy is, answer. Which is not, not yet. Not right? yet. Meaning what the heck? I kind of want to watch it again. Okay. Right. I've only seen it once. Uh, I only watched it the one time and sitting here talking about it mm-hmm. is like really fun. Right. <laughs> But like the act of the first time I watched the film, I was like not nearly as actively engaged. Like I wasn't uh, I didn't have this level of energy Mm. right in the feelings that I was having watching it. Right. It felt more like a curio. Right. I was like, okay, all right. I understand what you're doing. And so I don't know if like now that I have seen it and I know what it is. If I watch it again, if I'll be like, Oh, this is much more delightful now that I like have a map of where we're going in my head. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think there was a while where I was sort of engaged with the wrong game with the movie. Right. Where I'm like, what is this? Right. <laughs> and now that I know what it is, like I, I suspect I would just enjoy it more. Mm. What's your thought? What are your, what, what was your verdict? Um, I think I would beam it up, but I think I have a similar caveat to yours, which is just, it's different, but it's still a caveat. And that is that I sort of recognize that I have this bias, you know, where I'm like David Fincher, he's a master. So whatever he does, surely is a masterpiece, you know? Right. And Watching this movie, I'm like, it definitely didn't land for me in the same way as like a Fight Club or, you know, a social network or a seven, you know, or even like a Gone Girl, which I consider to be sort of like a comparatively like lesser David Fincher film, but still, Mm -hmm. but still kind of like the work of a master, you know? Right. Um, And this film, I'm like, well, I just kind of assumed it was the work of a master coming in. So right. that informed my whole reading of the movie. And now that I've seen it and there's some parts that, you know, maybe didn't resonate with me the same way they did as with those other films. Um, rather than think, oh, okay, so this movie wasn't as good as those the way I sort of automatically interpreted it was, Oh, okay. So those parts didn't resonate with me as much as with those other films, but I still just kind of assume they were made very masterfully. Right. (laughs) So, so, um, I, I only want to call attention to this to, to just basically acknowledge that I do recognize there's a degree of bias in my, takeaway but i mean the way i felt when the movie ended and the way i feel now is is pretty much you don't see a lot of movies made with this level of competence and yeah i also i also think we we before we even hit record we were talking quite a bit about competence and so yeah there's definitely that part of me that's like look that ain't nothing okay yeah (laughs) you know yeah don't take that for granted (laughs) People who knew who know what they're doing, that's kind of precious, actually. Um, and so I think I definitely value that. And I think 
coming walking away from this movie, I'm like, thank goodness that David Fincher made another movie. You know, this particular mm-hmm. one, this particular one was not as, um, you know, resonant for me as some of his other movies, but that doesn't change the fact that it was a movie made by David Fincher. He knew exactly what he was going for. It was written by his dad, which is kind of a treasure in its own right. You know, mm-hmm. it's like his dad's sole contribution to the world of cinema. As far as I know, um, it relates to what is arguably one of the best American, you know, films ever made. And it's got a lot to say about the role of a writer and of, of an artist within a system, you know? Right. And so for all those things, I'm like, it's amazing, you know? Right. Everybody should watch this. What are you talking about? It's, it's, uh, it's 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 like entered the that echelon of required viewing yeah. but so so i would absolutely beam it up but i at the same time as saying all those things i sort of recognize that you know also i'm sort of biased and this is kind of a movie that i was very much inclined to like from the beginning so i know that and maybe that's distorted my view i don't know but i would beam it up yeah, I, I feel like um, I'm I'm having a, and this is why I'm like I'm not ready yet. When my, my the word yet is in my verdict, which I feel like I reserve the right to change in the future. Um, but I'm sort of imagining like, what if this movie had been made by, you know, the same direct the guy who directed The Vast of Night. Right. <laughs> totally. It's so funny you like, say that. I was like, I was about to say exactly the same thing. Just right. like a talented young buck, you know, right? Who's just making his second movie, and he's not a proven—he's not a proven known quantity within Hollywood, right? And the the tough answer, like, is I'm not sure if that if I would say, oh, I would love this movie more because mm. I wouldn't be carrying the weight of expectations that I have with the David Fincher film, and that and it would make yeah. me love it that much more. Or would it have the exact opposite thing where I'm like, because it's not a David Fincher movie, I don't feel this obligation to love it in the same way. And therefore I would be more critical of the film, right? Like I don't frankly know. And so that's sort of why I want to rewatch it with that kind of like rubric in place. And it's like, what if this was directed by the same guy who directed the vast of night? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll give it sort of the emotional, gimme of like let's pretend it was written by his father right like how would i how would i react to this movie at that point right and that's where it's like i don't know and i want to stress test it like yeah because depending on the answer i feel like that will sort of govern whether it's like beam it up or don't all right fair well i am choosing to understand that this was made by david fincher mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of incorporate that into my rating. i'll push the button i'll push it all right there it's out there we go it's beamed up to the astronaut enjoy mank buddy you're welcome we did it it was roundabout but we did it we talked about mank all right
Thanks, everybody. This has been another episode of Space Flicks. And I am, as always, the organ grinder's monkey. <laughs> I guess that makes me... I think I'm just the other organ grinder's monkey. We're just two... Yeah, there's two <laughs> monkeys in this particular parable. Yes. All right. Thanks, I'm everybody, Adam. for listening. I'm Dan. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>